This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And today we've got an excellent episode for you. Yeah, we we sure do. We've got uh, Nathan Louster, who is a UBC sociologist. Exactly. He's also the author of a new book called The Death and Life of the Single Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City. Yeah, and that book comes out this month, so it's really exciting. Uh, I think it's on pre-order right now, but uh, it's uh, it's fantastic that we were able to get Nathan on. Right, right. So, Matt, I, I noticed you're you're wearing a, a, a slightly is that, tighter shirt. Is that a is that a slim fit? It looks like a Banana <laughs> Republic slim fit. I haven't worn a Banana Republic slim fit in months. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're uh, we should probably explain we're we're four weeks out from the final photos of our weight loss. Uh, competition yeah, wedding I edition believe, i can't believe we haven't brought this up yet yeah no it's been uh it's been an interesting we've for the last what eight eight weeks nine ten weeks yeah maybe been... we should outline the context of this this weight loss program sure uh, so adam is getting married in november yes uh, mid-november mid-november and you actually brought it up. Well, I, you know, I wanted to uh, get married in a speedo. No, just kidding. I wanted to. I wanted you to. You want to look your best. I wanted to look. There's going to be a lot of photos. I'm a little bit concerned. I was. I was you gaining a, a lot of weight. Bit chubby. I was gaining a lot of weight 
particularly in the face region. Uh, I think, you know, And also maybe, in the midriff yeah. region, would you say? <laughs> a little bit. Uh, also so, in the chest region. Yeah, everywhere, everywhere. It was uh, just generally speaking, um, the circumference of my body was getting larger. <laughs> yeah. And we, so we, we decided between, so it's you, this right. competition between you, myself, and then podcast fanboy Chris Galina, <laughs> our oldest brother. <laughs> uh, just kidding, Chris. Uh, but we, uh, so we basically decided that we were going to take photos right early on. And so we did that. Well, and- weekly photos as a yeah. kind of update, uh, a, a photo diary, if you will. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and also weigh-ins. Week, we, weekly weigh-ins. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, it's, I thought it would be a motivational sort of factor having yeah. to get these photos taken every week turns out it hasn't worked out so well no uh, how, how's it going for you yeah well it's uh it's it's been good for me uh i've been going to the gym it's it's i i gotta say t- having these photos first of all you got to get somebody to actually take the photos of you so i've been getting sabrina to take these really awkward angles photos and uh it's it's probably hurting our relationship <laughs> um it's uh it, you never realize how like you don't see yourself at these angles right yeah it's, uh you know no, it's it's funny. I think I saw somebody said before that, you know, women look fantastic and feel terrible at the beach and guys look terrible and, and generally walk, r- walk around like they're full of muscles. And I think... It's called invisible lat syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ILS. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, these photos have uh, alerted me to uh, some... Well, didn't you have an awkward situation with a, with a phone reminder? Oh yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I set up because we're, so we're taking the photos, what, every Sunday night, I think, yep. which is actually the worst time to be taking photos. <laughs> right uh, after a cheese pizza. Yeah, after, after a, yeah, a weekend of falling off the wagon and, uh, and then having to stand up at eight o'clock and call over your significant, significant other to, uh, take topless photos of yourself. Right. But what happened to me, yeah, was I, I set appointments in my phone. Um, to remind me to take these photos and uh, yeah we were sitting we were sitting at the table when one of them popped up on my phone that just said appointment topless photos <laughs> uh, had some explaining to do right <laughs> and I did the explaining by ripping off my shirt <laughs> and getting in front of the oh, same background geez. and saying snap away yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, but anyway, it's, it's been, night. yeah, it's been, so what we've been at, we've been at it six, eight weeks. It's been a, uh, I'm on a deep shame spiral here right. that I'm having trouble getting out of. I'm having these, uh, panicky sleeps where I'm waking up in a cold sweat cause I'm, I had a dream that there was an iCloud leak and, uh, <laughs> and our photos are all over the internet. Yeah, we'll put them uh, in the show notes. Not that anyone would care, but, yeah. uh, I would. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, no, I've actually, I've been, we've been going to the gym. Uh, I've been going to the gym every morning. Um, it's actually been okay. There's a, there's this really ripped guy at the gym who always has these motivational shirts. Wait, wait, wait yeah. Um, well, I don't go to the same gym as you. Uh, which one, which, what so, motivation so shirts? for example, he's got, you know, the other one, what was he wearing the other day? Uh, he had a shirt that said, is that all you got? 
And so, you know, I'm lifting weights. Yes. <laughs> at, at first, I'm thinking. <laughs> at first, I'm thinking these are kind of cheesy shirts. But then I start seeing this guy at the gym all the time, and the other, he was wearing one that said "Endorphin Junkie." Um, and then he wore a tank top the other day, and it said "I flexed," and the sleeves fell off. <laughs> um, so these are these are now becoming. So whenever I see this guy, I'm kind of they're actually you motivating push a little bit harder. Yeah, they're motivating me. So I've got this guy who doesn't know he's my personal trainer <laughs> slash motivator at the gym. And I'm finding actually when he's not there that I'm just not going as hard. So I'm contemplating getting a few motivational shirts myself. <laughs> don't the, My advice would be don't do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, so, well, maybe we'll cut to, we've got an article that we wanted to talk about. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just came out in the CBC, right? Yeah, well, you weren't cited in it, but you... Uh... I've been dealing with the CBC a bit. I was speaking to the reporter who wrote the article, and uh, I introduced her to clients of mine. So basically, they were looking for people that had been kind of frustrated who were looking for townhomes in East Vancouver, right. um, or in Vancouver in general, actually. And I had clients who had missed out on one property uh, that sold well over asking. So I introduced them. Um, the article kind of spun it as they were very frustrated buyers. I, that was not really the case. They had just kind of started their search. They, were, they were only slightly frustrated. Slightly frustrated. Although uh, happy to report we have found a place now and now they're ecstatic buyers, right. I think. So. Right. Actually, the interesting point about that as well is they were slightly frustrated because they lost in multiples. Uh, they also sold their place in multiples. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and part of the reason of, of them doing really well in this market is, is because of the price bracket that they're operating in. So they were looking at townhomes under a million. They sold their one bedroom condo, which was around the uh, mid five hundreds. So still very entry level, very, uh, almost a hyper local market. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Product that's not being impacted by the foreign buyers tax because there's, uh, just a lack of supply out there. Right. The article, uh, was called despite Vancouver's foreign buyer tax, it's proving to be a seller's market for townhomes. I think that a couple things that the article highlights is one is that there are only 16 new townhomes that will hit the pre-sale market this fall, Yeah, right? Um, so we are dealing with uh, a type of property where there's limited supply and there mm-hmm. does seem to be a gap between two-bedroom condos that families maybe don't necessarily want to live in and the single family detached house, which seems unreachable or unachievable mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So there's this sweet spot of 800 to 1.2 kind of townhome where they can actually have their own entrance. Yep. You know, um, they might have a bit of a yard or some outdoor space where the kids could play. And it's as close as you can get to a detached house. And often it's it's a bit newer, lower maintenance. You just pay your maintenance fees in a in a complex, and it's it's a choice that a lot of people are making. Right, and this is part of the issue is that people find themselves in a bit of a precarious position because they're debating: well, do I get a house in the lower in the entry level price point, which right. might be around that one point one one point two? That's not going to be a very nice house, not it's, a very livable. No, house. you know what? And right now there's a couple uh, in East Van that they come on around a million eighty eight. Usually is that yep. lowest price point. And they're, they're basically, you're going to have to do a major renovation or or basically tear it down. Sure. Exactly. So people don't have that capital on hand. They're using it for their down payment. Yeah. The one flip side we should point out though, if you are in that 1.1, 1.2 range for a townhome, 
you might want to stretch just because you get that that suite in the basement, that mm-hmm. mortgage helper, right? So we've said this in previous shows, for every $400 you get from your suite, it takes off around $100,000 off your mortgage. That's right, yeah. So if you have a larger mortgage, just to flesh this out, a larger mortgage with a home, you're, actually your carrying costs are potentially going to be quite a bit lower every month uh, with a single family home than with a townhome when you factor in couple hundred bucks on a maintenance fee, uh, as well as not getting that thousand bucks, 1500 bucks, somewhere in there for that mortgage helper. My three takeaways from this article, uh, they they did find a place, which is excellent. So they're no longer frustrated buyers, but it did highlight an important point. Yeah. Uh, two, um, there still are bi- busy segments of this market. Um, I think you were saying before we went on, went live here that it's it's mostly seems to be the the local market. That's yeah, quite exactly. Active. It seems like it's a uh, the under the one point two range is what I'm seeing where that's uh, most active. So a lot of end users, people that are planning on living in these properties, not so much investors. Yeah, exactly. And the last point is that um, in the article, if you read it, um, my client Henrik actually he's from Sweden and he makes a call for densification. What he suggests is that you know we could be rezoning. We've done it in parts of Sweden. It's been very successful and it, it allows for people to avoid the commute. And the reality is, is we just don't need all these single family massive homes on these large lots. And you know what, Hendrick's point actually speaks to Nathan Louster's larger point in his new book. And we're going to talk to him, right? His whole point is that moving away from single family homes is a net positive in Vancouver, and it's a model for the rest of North America. And, and there's a lot of benefits to higher densification and fewer long commutes to the suburbs. So here's our interview with Nathan Louster. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with uh, Nathan Louster, Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at UBC. How are you doing, Nathan? Doing well, thank you. Uh, So can you start by just maybe telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. I'm a sociologist. I also... uh began working at UBC in the Department of Social Work and Family Studies. So I used to, I, I'm also a family researcher in that sense. And uh, I also am a demographer by training, but I've really moved from uh, working just with the numbers to also going out and talking with people, <laughs> which is a, a shift, which is wonderful. And that's part of what the recent book is based on, is actually going out and talking with people. Um, but that's, uh, that's, provides you something about the background uh, um, that I bring to bear, um, that I used to be mostly a numbers cruncher uh, who looked at census data, and now I'm actually also going out and talking with people about housing and, and their families and how these things go to bed, go together for them. Okay, great. Well, yeah, maybe I should uh, <laughs> say we have, we're, we have you on the show here uh, because you're coming out with a new book, The Death and Life of the Single Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City. I guess a good question to start is, what are the lessons from Vancouver for building a livable city? <laughs> uh, good, good question. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that's notable about Vancouver um, in perspective across North America is that uh, it's really moved the most rapidly away from the single-family house of any major metropolis. And that's, that's not just the city of Vancouver, of course, that's, that's also the surrounding municipalities. That um, we've seen an enormous transformation since the 1960s, um, really moving away from the single-family house as the dominant way that people live. 
And it's done that more than any other city. The only city, uh, the only metropolis that beats Vancouver as of the last census was Montreal in terms of fewer people living in single-family houses, uh, which is quite striking when you think about big uh, cities like New York City where you think everyone lives in an apartment, but, you know, if you go out to the suburbs, it's definitely not the case. Uh, whereas if you go out to Vancouver suburbs, again, a lot of people are living in alternatives to the single-family house. So, so that's interesting. One of the things Adam and I were were discussing before uh, we gave you a call here was how singular Vancouver is. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, uh, the geography of the Lower Mainland and, and uh, Vancouver being a global city and all these things that are quite unique, at least in Canada. But it sounds like there's two interesting points there. One that Montreal is a city that's uh, that's similar. Um, and two, the 1960s strikes me as an interesting time for that shift to start taking place because at least in the popular narrative that we hear, it's always Expo uh, 1986 that, that uh, sees Vancouver kind of explode and, and presumably housing costs get uh, out of reach for a lot of people and, and this sort of larger trend that you're documenting takes place. But can you speak a little bit to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it really is. You know, Vancouver and Montreal are very different cities in many ways, but uh, and they come to their current position of having a lot of people live outside of single-family houses from very different routes. I mean, Montreal is really built on uh, uh, its historic legacy of older housing uh, that has been around for a long time, and it hasn't seen the rapid growth in population that Vancouver has. Um, so that's a different way to get there, that you have a lot of old housing stock. And you have a lot of cities across the East Coast that have a lot of old housing stock that are actually building more and more single-family houses on the outskirts. They're sprawling outwards. Uh, whereas Vancouver and a number of other cities on the West Coast, they're just not doing it as fast, are moving in the opposite direction. They're actually building more and more density. Um, so that's the difference that you really see between Vancouver and Montreal, despite the fact that uh, if you just look at how many people live in single-family houses – they're pretty much the closest cities to each other. They get there very differently. In terms of that history, in terms of going back to the 1960s, um, yeah, I think that really is a turning point uh, for Vancouver. Um, I think that, you know, certainly Expo is part of that broader process, especially of driving up prices. Uh, but when you go back to the 60s, that's when you really saw um, this transformation in terms of certainly building up the West End into uh, these apartment towers. Um, and also setting up what happened in the early 70s, uh, which is you had um, a team move into uh, um, the local city council and a transformation then that encouraged not just towers, but also a lot of low rises uh, and other new forms of housing like cooperatives. And then more broadly speaking, you also had uh, the NDP bring in the Agricultural Land Reserve, which, of course, has had a huge impact on limiting the outward sprawl of houses in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if you want to add to that as well, another part of that story, um, and what emboldened both of those political groups was the stopping of the freeway, which, of course, we don't have in Vancouver, unlike basically every other metropolis in North America. We have no freeway into the downtown. So that really has this knock-on effect of opening up more land to redevelopment within Vancouver that otherwise would have been taken up by a freeway and emboldening these uh, people who brought in alternative understandings of how to build a city um, and how to protect the surrounding agricultural land from further sprawling development. Right. So, and it seems like a, a 
a huge chunk of the argument uh, of your book uh, centers around the single family house. Can you speak a little bit about the problems uh, you see with the single family home? And and and, uh, and Adams just uh, wrote a note to me here that what are the lessons from Vancouver on building a livable city? I think I cut you off there and uh, and, <laughs> and get back to the the key crux of the book. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that. Uh, um what Vancouver has done well is try to build livability outside of the single-family house. So if you're going to have density, make sure it's connected up to transit, make sure it's connected up to uh, um, all sorts of amenities, nice park spaces. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that Vancouver works towards in terms of its planning, uh, is to actually make it really a pleasant uh, experience to live mm-hmm. outside of the house and uh, make sure that people have lots of access to public space uh, in terms of what they, in a trade for what they give up by losing that private space and the privatized space that we really get with single family houses. So I think that's what Vancouver has done well. And they also have done it mostly through uh, a variety of policy innovations um, in terms of building, for instance, the agricultural land reserve to shut down um, outward expansion of the single family house in terms of uh, opening up lots of alternative ways of living so that you're not just limited to high-rises, although that's the most prominent thing that we see. Uh, There's lots of alternative uh, sorts of dwellings that people can live in, lots of low-rise alternatives. Uh, We are missing, uh, um, compared to a lot of other cities, a lot of the townhouses that we would see in many other places. And so there are some of these middle-range options that are missing. Um, But Vancouver has actually done pretty well (laughs) in terms of providing low-rise alternatives to the single-family house. And so you you have what I like to think of as three different things that Vancouver's done, which is build around the single-family house in terms of these um, uh, great reserves that we've set up by zoning that are only where houses can be developed. We've built around them by limiting their sprawl into the agricultural lands and by encouraging alternatives in the urban core. Um, And we've also built over them in limited cases, Remarkably, if you look at uh, the old zoning maps uh, where land was set aside for single-family houses and the present ones, so going all the way back to the 1920s when you first had the um, interim bylaws that protected single-family houses from um, redevelopment, they look remarkably similar. There hasn't been that much transformation in Vancouver in terms of that land set aside to protect single-family houses. But there has been some. And you can certainly see it uh, um, being eaten away, especially along the arterials. And, of course, that's presently picking up the pace of that kind of redevelopment across Vancouver. Okay, so if I understand kind of the the argument for why Vancouver's been successful, it has a lot to do with not only the geography, but the fact that, that it's it's pushed towards more density and urbanization. If If that's the case, then why is urban sprawl in other cities... Why is it a bad thing? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, first off, of course, they're really expensive, right? I mean, that's the most expensive way to house people. And in that sense, they're also quite exclusive, um, that uh, uh, they effectively keep out poor people. You can't afford a single-family house. Um, so that's one problem with them from a social justice perspective, which is part of where I'm writing from. Um, but you also have a variety of other problems in terms of... Uh, what they do to the environment. Single-family houses, by and large, are not as sustainable. They use much more energy. Um, they take up much more land, which is part of what we see in terms of uh, urban sprawl, is seeing that as a problem. Every time you build a new single-family house on the outskirts, it's taking away land from forests, from agriculture, from other uses and other ecologies, effectively. 
Uh, and we also see them encourage the use of, sing- of uh, cars, um, by and large, because to get anywhere from a single-family house, uh, usually you have to take a car to get there. Now, that's not always the case, of course. In some of Vancouver's really expensive neighborhoods, you are still surrounded by walkable uh, places to go to. But uh, for the most part, houses are surrounded by other houses. So to get anywhere, you have to take a car. And taking a car just adds further to the enormous energy use that's already associated with heating and cooling a house. And that increases greenhouse gas emissions uh, on a more global level. So that's actually a big chunk in terms of North American uh, uh, lifestyles of living in single-family houses and driving around in cars. That's a big chunk of why we produce so much in terms of greenhouse gases. Um, So that's part of the story right there. And then in terms of uh, other more local levels, in terms of having good public space, in terms of having a city that's vital where people are out um, running into each other, seeing new and exciting things, single-family houses tend to really depress that. I mean, you tend to privatize space, um, and you really end up lacking in public space where people can go and mingle and mix and get that sense of real urban vitality. So that's another aspect of it. And then you can even take it down to uh, the family level. Somewhat surprisingly, there's not much evidence that single-family houses are doing a great job in things like keeping families together. Uh, somewhat strikingly, if you do some of the, look at some of the research, like some of the research I've done in Sweden, if you see more development of single-family houses, you actually see more couples split apart. And I'm not entirely sure what's going on there. But, <laughs> Probably has uh, to do with the renovation. There's no protective effect. <laughs> We're just wondering if there's a correlation between having a single-family house and renovating, which <laughs> and divorces. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I haven't looked into that. That's entirely possible. There's a, there's a guy who's done a whole book on renovations uh, out of McMaster, a geographer in Canada who's quite well-respected. Uh, maybe he'd be the person to check into about that. <laughs> on the next episode, yeah. So Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but then even in terms of human health, right, in terms of uh, um, uh, the sort of ways that people get out and walk around, they just tend to do that less in, in neighborhoods that are dominated by houses than they do in more urban, dense neighborhoods where there are places to go uh, that you can walk to uh, or bike to. So all of these reasons, um, I think that we've really done ourselves a disservice in terms of setting aside so much land for single-family houses. So we don't disagree with you at all, but uh, there, there seems to be a trend or at least a, a commonly held belief that the, the end goal for most people in Vancouver is to have the detach. It's a dream that's often not realized, and in North America more generally. So wh- where do you think that stems from, and why does that? why is that still so prevalent? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I mean, I think there's two things that it stems from um, that both have to be taken seriously. One is that culturally speaking, um, a house really has come to be seen as a symbol of success. Um, If you live in a single-family house, I mean, again, it's only rich people can afford to live in them, especially in a city like Vancouver. But even outside of Vancouver, uh, there's an income cutoff that you can't get a house until you make a certain amount of income, effectively, or have a certain amount of wealth. So in that sense, it's really a sign of wealth, and it's a sign of success, and it's something that people have come to associate with success. And most people, most North Americans, have grown up in houses. Um, So they think of these things as the symbols of success and the symbols of what you need in order to have a family, because it's how most Americans grew up. Um, So both from feeling like you're a good parent and from feeling like you're a success in life, from the standpoint of both of these things, 
a house is a really important cultural symbol that tells you you're doing a good job. Um, and so if people can't get that, just culturally speaking, cognitively speaking, they, they, they have a hard time seeing themselves as being successful. So that's one important start, part of the story, um, is that symbolically the house is an important symbol of success. The other start, part of the story, of course, is that living in a house is kind of comfortable, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you've, you've got, uh, it's, it's a very stable space. You've got a lot of room, by and large, the, the roomiest kinds of dwellings that we have um, on average. I mean, there are obviously small houses and big apartments, but overall, houses are big, apartments are small. So that, too, uh, just in terms of having control, uh, the most amount of control over the most amount of space, that's the kind of package that a single-family house offers, that other kinds of dwellings tend to give up some control or some space um, compared to a single-family house. So in that sense, a single-family house offers a lot in terms of space and control. Uh, I think what I'm trying to suggest in my book is not that we ignore that, but that we also open up the alternatives because when you give up a little bit of space or a little bit of control, you get a lot uh, as well in terms of livability. It's just a different way of living, a different lifestyle, getting out more, um, in integrating more in terms of your surrounding community, enjoying those public spaces more, um, getting to know your neighbors more in many circumstances. So these are all things that I think uh, can be promoted uh, as alternatives uh, to the single-family house that ultimately are less damaging in all the other ways that we see the single-family house cause trouble for us. In Vancouver right now, we see a lot of hostility and resentment with people speaking about, or people angry that they can't uh, afford single-family homes or even afford properties. But I think single-family home and this ideal that you've described here is, is a key factor in that anger. But it sounds to me like this is actually probably a net positive, people moving into smaller spaces. Do you see this anger and, and even sort of potentially racist undertones as kind of a growing pain toward kind of a, a better city in the future? Or, or do you see that as kind of legitimate? Sure. I mean, I think it is, uh, you know, it's an interesting way to put it as a growing pain. I mean, I think it definitely, uh, it's definitely out there. We have a lot of that anger. It's coming from, of course, people feeling like they're being kept from being a success. So if you think of the house as an important symbol of success, if you think of it um, as people understanding, you know, having a house is, as enabling them to be a good parent, well, there's not, I mean, speaking as a parent, right, there's nothing that's going to get me more angry and upset than if somebody's not letting me be a good parent if I feel like I'm doing a really bad job. Um, so, of course, people get emotionally invested in single-family houses and are not being able to afford it. Um, and it turns ugly in many cases, right? So you, you mentioned the sort of racist rhetoric that sometimes we get around about this, uh, and it's definitely out there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it comes from this real, uh, um, these real uh, emotional feelings that are stirred up by your inability to get at this really important symbol of success and to feel like you're doing a good job uh, and important roles to you, like being a good parent. Um, I think that, and this is also coming from going out and talking to people, I think there are a lot of people, though, who really are able to set that aside uh, effectively and say, you know what, my lifestyle is different. I'm going to parent differently. I really like my kids having access to all the diversity around them, having access to all the wonderful public spaces around them. Um, and I think I'm going to be a good parent, an even better parent, 
here in the context of an apartment in the West End of Vancouver or something, then I could be uh, living in a single-family house where I have to drive my kids everywhere and they spend so much time in the car um, and they don't always see people who look different from themselves um, and they don't get exposed to that broader cultural menu that you get in urban living. So I really found a lot of people who, who talked about like forging these different models of what parenthood was and of what success was in life, corresponding to that more broadly, where they didn't need and didn't want a house um, because they were able to start to formulate something different. So I think there really is uh, a lot of positive forward movement to getting to um, different cultural models of how to be a success in life and of how to be a good parent that don't require the single-family house. Um, and I think Vancouver can really encourage that. So that's something I'd like to see us move toward. Um, and will there be growing pains along the way? There will definitely be people who are upset with not being able to follow a more traditional model of uh, uh, having a single-family house is demonstrating their success in life. And I really do feel for those people. I mean, a lot of them are really feeling pain over this. But hopefully, the more we promote that there are alternative ways of, uh, of doing this um, and of being a great parent, um, the more I think people will realize that, you know, Vancouver is a great place to live, even if you don't have a house. And it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because that's definitely a trend that we've been recognizing as well, where people seem to be moving to smaller spaces and feel very confident about that decision. Is that something from your research that, is there anything kind of driving that or any kind of trends that you can point to? Like, is it generational or, or is it more cultural? Or, yeah, or is it is it cultural or, or economic, I guess, would be one way of thinking about it as well. Uh, it's it's all of the above, I think. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, people, people can't afford a house. Right, so for a lot of people, it's just—it's not even a question that that they have an option. The question is what they do about it. Do they leave um, Vancouver? Which, of course, we've seen a lot of talk about people leaving. It's not showing up in the data overall at a net basis. Vancouver is still growing, right? So more people are coming than leaving. Um, but uh, um, what are they doing when they get here? Are they miserable, or do they instead start to come to a different understanding of? how they should live their lives and uh, um, incorporating living in something that's not a house into that life and that lifestyle. And I think a lot of people are really moving towards that, um, which is great. Uh, I feel like I lost the thread, though, of your question there. There was something, oh, in terms of the broader cultural context, I think Vancouver, you know, both because it's kind of always been a lifestyle mecca for people who are interested in alternative modes of living and because you have a really multicultural city now with a lot of people coming from all over the world to uh, to live here, you have a lot of different cultural material, if you want to think of it that way, a lot of cultural scaffolding for uh, trying to build a understanding of what's a successful life and what's a good family differently from the rest of North America, which I think is really exciting. So there is a lot of uh, of stuff here for people to work with in terms of their own understandings of what's good housing um, that really can make Vancouver a beacon for alternative ways of living all across North America. Um, so I think that's part of what I want to emphasize. And even things like constructing the agricultural land reserve, uh, setting aside so much from land surrounding Vancouver for parks and recreational area, uh, all of this helps make sure that this remains a really livable place. Uh, but for instance, if you go further down the, down the coast, you know, you've got lots of I mean, basically all of the West Coast in North America is constrained by mountains and ocean, right? So in that sense, you would expect that all of it might look like Vancouver. 
But in fact, you go down the coast, and a lot of it's actually quite sprawling, quite spread out. Um, so in terms of looking at what Vancouver's done differently, a lot of it, I think, really does come down to the regulatory innovations in Vancouver um, that we have seen Uh towards preserving land, towards preventing sprawl, towards uh, making uh, livable spaces in terms of uh, our history of building cooperatives, of building uh, uh, strata legislation. We were one of the early adopters. So there's a variety of things that I think um, that Vancouver has done to promote livability that are often these things we don't notice. Um, and that's also one of the things I want to call attention to in terms of policy, the things we often don't notice, like zoning, are what's preventing us from doing even better uh, in terms of the single-family zoning and setting aside so much land for single-family houses. We don't have to actually um, regulate that everybody must build more densely. All we have to do in terms of uh, uh, densifying further in a more livable way is loosening all the restrictions that currently protect single-family houses and set aside so much of our land base for millionaires and millionaires alone. Because <laughs> nobody else can afford those single-family houses that occupy most of our landscape, even now. Well, maybe we'll leave it there, um, Nathan. So, can you tell us when is when is your book coming out? It should be out in uh, mid-October, either October 10th or the 16th. I get different responses from my press, but <laughs> but it should be out right in the middle of October. Perfect. So it's called The Death and Life of the Single Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City, and it will be out in October 2016. And thank you very much for your time, yeah, Nathan. Yeah, thanks so much for your time, Nathan. It was a pleasure. Okay, take care. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Nathan Louster, sociologist uh, at Univ- the University of British Columbia. Once again, his book is called The Death and Life of the Single Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City. Right. And it's out this month, and you can pre-order it on Amazon right now. So uh, Yeah, it's available for pre-order on Amazon. So a uh, very interesting book if you live in Vancouver, especially if you're interested in real estate or urban planning. Or if you're looking to take lessons away from Vancouver. For sure. Yeah. So anyone, any other cities too, I guess. We wanted to remind everybody that we've got a Facebook page and uh, we're also doing an iTunes review drive here. We would love... Yeah, we just started our iTunes review drive. Yeah, we've got uh, 70 reviews currently and by the end of the year... thank you everyone. Thank you everyone for the reviews. Yeah, we hugely appreciate the reviews and uh, by the end of the year, we'd love to get up to 100 reviews. So if you haven't rated us on iTunes... Uh, you don't have to. You don't have to uh, rate us positively. It's however you feel about it. We yeah. just want the rating. So we'd yeah. love to hear what you think of the show. Um, if you have any advice about the show, feel free to 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 reach out to us as well. Yeah. Um, but if you want to inflate the grade you give too, that's not bad. No. If oh. you want to, even if you hate us, if you want to just give us five stars, <laughs> that's that's totally yeah. appropriate. <laughs> totally appropriate and right. acceptable and uh, encouraged. Yeah. Definitely so, encouraged. So, uh, Matt, how can people get a hold of you? 778-847-2854 or matt at scalinarealestate.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at scalinarealestate.com. And we do have that nonpartisan line as well. Info, Info at com. So uh, that's today's show. I uh, hope you enjoyed. Please join us next week and have a great week. Yeah, absolutely. Take care, guys. Goodbye. 
Faces for Radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 